Things are not always as they seem. Take this picture, for example. This is at Chick-fil-A the other night with my little cow, dressed that way so that he could get a free, um, some free nuggets at Chick-fil-A. Here we are enjoying ourselves. This is the before, and then this is the after. Let's see the next one here. I want you to take a minute to soak this picture in. Soak it in, soak it in. <clears throat> soak it in. I know what seems to have happened in this picture. I know what you're thinking, and it maybe, or maybe it has something to do with that grubby little eight-month-old who is uncoordinated and whose brother left an open bottle of milk within his reach. Okay. Judging by your faces, you're not convinced. Either were the pig, people at Chick-fil-A. Uh, especially the parents when I had to walk into the play area to get Noble because suddenly Chick-fil-A was very cold and felt especially breezy. They were not convinced. You could just see them looking like, dude, come on. Come on, really? Uh, things, things are not always as they seem. Let's take that down before anybody takes a screenshot. Things are not <clears throat> always as they seem. That could be the title of Revelation. Things are not as they seem. You've got John. He's exiled to the island of Patmos, and he's writing to these seven little churches in Asia Minor within the grip of the Roman Empire. And if you've read Revelation, you know he writes in this incredible language, in this kind of outrageous language at times. It's really hard to understand. But the key is, the simple thing that John is trying to say is, the things are not always as they seem. Okay. Now, what you need to remember before we start reading this behind me is that John gets a vision, and that vision starts at the tail end of chapter 1, and that vision is given to him by Jesus Christ and stretches to the end of the book. And so he doesn't write the preface to that vision before getting the vision. He writes down the vision and then goes back and adds this preface. So if we pay attention to this preface, we can learn a lot about what's to come in the book. It's basically a summary statement of everything you're about to read in Revelation. So that's what we're going to do today. And we're going to start at verse 4. And the thing to remember is things are not always as they seem. <clears throat> John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. From him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom. Priests serving his God and Father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look. He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. She wanted to look evil in the face. So she went to the talk, went to talk to the devil himself. Or so she thought, things are not always as they seem. His name was Adolf Eichmann. And during the Holocaust, he became known as the architect. The architect of the Holocaust. He was the SS officer charged with the logistics of transporting Germany's millions of Jews to extermination camps. That is, he was an office worker. 
He never flipped any switches, gas switches. He never pulled any triggers, but he pushed the papers that moved all of the Jews. And so while the rest of Nazi war criminals, most of them were caught and went to the Nuremberg trial shortly after the war, he escaped and wasn't caught until 1961. When he was captured, he was sent back to Israel to stand trial. And Hannah Arndt, who was working for the New Yorker magazine, convinced the magazine to send her to Israel to cover the trial because she wanted, in her own words, to look the devil in the eyes. And so when she sat across from him at their interview, what she found was surprising. The man sitting across from her was polite, nice, kind of funny, but simple, a little shallow, kind of hollow, she said, more of a fool than a devil, she wrote. And so she wanted to know how this guy, this old balding gentleman with glasses, had done something so terrible. So she asked him, and he said, well, you know, I just, I trusted my country, my my superiors, and I just, I, just, I just showed up to work, and I, I did my job. You know, I wasn't one to, to raise questions or raise a fuss. I just, you know, just trusted them, just did my job. When she wrote about this, she called it the banality of evil, the banality of evil, meaning unoriginal, dull, unimaginative. Evil, it turns out, is so dull Okay, so what she saw was that the face of evil in this world is not some thing in red tights with claws and fangs and a pointy tail with creepy music playing in the background. The face of evil is quite boring. One author wrote, reflecting on it, evil is as boring as forwarding emails and making copies at the office. Evil's keeping the paperwork moving. So I know what you're thinking there. I forwarded an email yesterday. You know, I, I made copies last week. I didn't realize that was so sinister. There's a little more to it than that. What she's saying is that <clears throat> evil happens when we don't question the world around us. When we just drink in what the world is saying. The value system of the world. Maybe that's our our government, our education system, our media, politics, entertainment, the value system of our workplaces. Germans would call it the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. And John of Revelation would call it Babylon, the beast. <clears throat> what Eichmann did was drink in the spirit of his age and never think to question it. And so evil won over Eichmann without him ever having to pull a trigger or flip a gas switch. Evil won with Eichmann when he made those copies and pushed those papers. Things are not always as they seem. And that story makes your guard come up, doesn't it? I mean, you look around you, people sitting next to you, and you kind of wonder, is evil this close by? You know, could it be in someone that's right here? Could it be in something I'm hearing? Could, could I be seduced by it like Eichmann was? I mean, I, I'm a good employee. I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. But would, would I just kind of do evil without realizing it? Which is exactly the thing John of Revelation is trying to get these seven churches to ask themselves. 
I mean, he is terrified while he's exiled to this island of Patmos that these seven churches in the grip of the Roman Empire, an empire that is violent and greedy and idolatrous, that they do not realize the water that they're swimming in and that they're just drinking it in like everybody else, becoming like everybody else around them. That's the problem. So why doesn't he just say that? What's, what's the deal with all these like beasts and harlots and dragons and sea monsters? And what's the deal with all the numbers, like 144,000 and seven and 24 and six, six, six? Why doesn't he just say, hey, evil's all around, wake up, all right, back to business. Well, uh, consider Little Red Riding Hood. I'm trying to make sense of this and I naturally went to fairy tales. Little Red Riding Hood. Uh, the girl is clueless, right? I mean, just oblivious to the world around her. She's frolicking around in the dangerous wood. She has a conversation with the wolf, doesn't think a thing about it, goes to grandma's house. Grandma's house. Grandma looks strange, sounds strange. Grandma and, or the big bad wolf, excuse me, and Little Red have a conversation. And then depending on your version, uh, the wolf jumps up and eats Little Red whole. Okay. Um, so here's the question to ask yourself about Little Red Riding Hood. Did a little girl really get eaten whole by a big bad wolf dressed as a grandma? Okay, well, no. But, but yes. And by that I mean Little Red Riding Hood is apocalyptic. The same genre as Revelation, which is not the way you typically think about Little Red Riding Hood. And apocalyptic doesn't mean the end of the world, like Walking Dead and zombies and all that. What it means is that there are two levels of reality. There's an earthly level that you and I see as humans and a heavenly level that we have difficulty seeing. The Bible would call those levels the earthly and the heavenly, okay? The flesh and the spirit. And these two exist side by side. And so we typically see the earthly, so we show up at grandma's house and it looks like grandma. You know, she's got grandma's clothes on. We think, Grandma, and we have a conversation with her. But apocalyptic happens when somebody stands there in the scene and rips back the covers, tears grandma's bonnet off and says, look, it's the big bad wolf. Like Red Riding Hood, wake up, it's the big bad wolf. Or in other words, children, be careful out there because there are some beastly, evil things out there. That's what the story is designed to show you. So apocalyptic is the language that's used to describe that heavenly level of reality. It's true that there are evil things out there, beastly things out there that would prey on children. And apocalyptic describes that level in a way that opens our eyes to see it for what it really is when we think it's, it's something else. It's the language to describe the heavenly when all we see is the earthly. So Eichmann, for example, in that first story, seems to be just your run-of-the-mill office worker just doing his job, but we know the truth. He killed millions. And so if John the Revelator was telling the story about Eichmann, he wouldn't be this older, kind, balding gentleman with glasses. He would be this wolf flailing about, devouring his prey, teeth, and claws. And you would want to get as far away from him as you could. Okay, now you're getting it. So when John starts this story with those seemingly simple words, grace to you and peace, P, 
peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. You're thinking to yourself now, well, maybe things are not as they seem. Maybe these words aren't so simple. And maybe like I told you, since they are summarizing everything we're about to read, we should pay attention because it is words like this, let me tell you, that have gotten John sent to Patmos. They're scandalous words, actually, in Rome. They're treasonous, in fact. Um, I ran up the street the other day with Brescian to get a, a Subway sandwich at lunch. He didn't buy. And um, <laughs> the guy in front of me had this hat on. Not Brescian, different guy. A guy at Subway had this hat on in line. And on the back of the hat, it said this embroidered in white letters next to the American flag, it said, violence does solve problems. And I thought, what a shame to have a typo already stitched into place on the back of your hat. I'm like, that's, I, I need to tell this guy, because that's embarrassing. You know, nobody walks around with a hat that says violence does solve problems. Nobody thinks that. But fortunately, I had my phone and I had Google, and so a quick Google search revealed violence does solve problems is the motto for a now defunct paramilitary organization formerly associated with the American sniper, Chris Kyle. Defunct because now they're in some legal trouble, which makes you wonder if violence will solve that too. Right? Violence does solve problems, it said. It seems like a typo. You know, the language is jarring. You hear it and you think, no way anybody thinks that. Well, except Rome, except the beast. Now, if you had asked a Roman senator at the time when Revelation was written, which I believe is after the fall of Jerusalem, somewhere around AD 70, I think it's a little bit later than that. If you had asked them around that time, in the midst of the Roman Empire, is Rome a violent place? I mean, do you, Mr. Senator, do you believe that violence solves problems? He just said, <laughs> no, 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 I don't think so. I mean, Rome, Rome's a place of peace. Ever since Emperor Augustus, blessed be his name, divine Lord, ruler of all, eternal God, ever since Augustus united this empire, we have been a place of peace. We call it the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And we inscribe those words on our Colosseums and in our marble benches and along our roadways, Roman peace, Pax Romana. This is a peaceful place. Just look around. And apparently, some of the Christians in these little churches are starting to believe that. That is, they're starting to kind of believe what the world's feeding them, that maybe violence does solve problems. You say, how do you get there? Well, John the Revelator knew the truth about the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana was a farce. It was a myth, the peace of Rome. It was a myth that a few, the rich elite in the center of Rome, enjoyed. Their life was very peaceful. But it was not a peace that the poor or the outcasts, the dissidents of Rome, enjoyed. For example, Roman soldiers would pour into the slums at a moment's notice and round up the poor and send them to die in Colosseums because people were needed who would die in Colosseums while the rest of the peaceful Roman Empire looked on and cheered. 
The Roman peace was a myth. We know this because in the center of Rome, sure, things seemed fairly peaceful, but on the borders of Rome's exhaustive empire, the empire was constantly in a state of warfare. And so things certainly seem peaceful when your village isn't being burned to line the tax-paying pockets of Roman citizens far away. The Roman peace was a myth. We knew this because Nero, the emperor Nero, could set a city on fire, likely, and then blame the few and scattered Christians in his empire, and then light them on fire, on stakes, to light his dinner parties while he danced around naked. There's nothing peaceful about that. And if there is one symbol that convinces us that the Roman peace is a myth, it's the cross. This symbol of state-sanctioned torture that often lined the roadways in and out of Rome with limp bodies hanging on it. If there was one thing that symbol said, even with Jesus Christ hanging on it, it was that violence does solve our problems. Don't be one of our problems. And so John of Patmos, himself a problem for the empire apparently, says things are not as they seem. The peace, the peaceful way of Christ is very different from the peaceful way of Rome. One will last forever and one will be consumed by the violence it lives on. Here's the most audacious claim of Revelation though that builds on that. And this is what you see even in these first verses. It's right there in the opening words when he says that Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is why the kind of language that's gotten John exiled. Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth, not the emperor. It's there in the next line when he said Christ freed us by his blood, not Emperor Augustus, and not by violence, but by sacrifice, and made us into a kingdom, an empire, in the middle of the largest, most accomplished empire in the history of the world at the time. It's there in the letters to the seven churches when he says to nearly every church in chapters 2 and 3, you will overcome. It's there in chapter 6 when he tells the Christian martyrs to wait just a little longer, he says, until justice is done on your behalf in the world. And it's there in chapter 5 when the lamb, looking as if it had been slain, rises to open the scroll that no one else in all of the heavens can open. And it's there in Revelation 18 when Babylon falls in on itself. And it's there in Revelation 20 when Satan is thrown finally into the lake of burning sulfur. The audacious, audacious treasonous, dangerous claim of revelation is that these little communities of peace are going to overcome the violence all around them. Do you believe that? Or do you think violence solves problems? It's been two weeks of violence. And in truth, it has been centuries of violence. But it's been two weeks of particularly um, present and powerful images and displays of violence. In fact, I had to get up this morning and check the news first thing and then check the news before I walked in here to make sure something else hadn't happened in the interim between me going to sleep and me preaching this morning. I mean, it's kind of sad you got to do something like that. 
But with the Orlando shooting a few weeks ago, we missed it on Sunday morning because we hadn't done that thing. I mean, what kind of world are we living in? We say, what? What is this world coming to? Well, John of Revelation would say, this is the way the world's always been. This is no different. Violence, greed, racism, violence against the state, violence by the state, coups, everybody thinking violence is going to solve their problems. There, in the words of Ecclesiastes, really is nothing new under the sun. We're still living in Rome. Violence does solve problems. But let me be pastoral here and remind you, like John would, things are not as they seem. It may seem like violence is winning. But it's the peace of Christ that is eternal. Not Rome, not the beast, the peace of the ruler of the kings of the earth. So what will your posture be? What will our posture be towards all this violence when we walk out of here this morning? You, you may remember that Jesus in Luke 10 sends out his disciples and he tells them, You're, I'm sending you out like lambs among big bad wolves. I added the big bad there to you know, tie it to the little red rock. You see what I did there? <clears throat> he says, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. But then he says, if you find a person of peace, a person of peace, stick around because the kingdom of God has come near, which in the context has to do with hospitality and the setting of violence. Do you have it in you to be a person of peace right now? A person who believes that the peace of the one who is and was and is to come is indeed eternal and lasting. Do you have it in you to be that? You say, well, Eric, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to go murder anybody or anything. And Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, do not murder, but I tell you, do not be angry. Do not be angry, which is a lot harder. Anger that boils up in our social media feeds, anger that boils up in our coffee time conversations, anger that boils up in dinner with family, right? Just anger about the world around us and disliking the people who don't like the people that I like, right? This anger that just consumes us. Jesus seems to be saying that that anger in our hearts makes us no different from somebody who pulls the trigger when they shouldn't, from somebody who takes a white truck and mows through a group of partygoers, from a nation, a military that rises up in this violent coup to try to overthrow its government. Apparently, when that anger creeps into our heart and we start seeing people as problems to be solved, it is not a far leap to think that violence will solve them. And it starts right here. I want you to be people of peace who when someone from this violent world emerges from it and comes to you, finds in your heart not anger, 
but hospitality. That you're a person who listens with an open heart, who receives them and does not allow the toxic gospel of the American sniper that violence does solve problems to be the gospel that, destroyed, that determines your life. I want you to be a person of peace. Because John the Revelator says that the peace of Christ is eternal and that those who have it will be as well. If you don't have the peace of Christ in your heart, if you haven't accepted, accepted Jesus the Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth, into your heart and the act of baptism, today's the day to do it. I'd love to receive you. I'll be down here in the front for a few moments. I'll make my way to the back along with some shepherds. If you'd like prayer, we'd love to pray with you. We have the praise team come up here. Will you stand as we sing together? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Holy 